it's so exciting to have a group of people here for a live event. It's been a long time. Um, so just uh, quickly, uh, thank you so much for coming tonight. My name is Mari Kirk. I'm the Director of uh, Engagement and Impact at the U.S. Study Center. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Crisis of American Democracy with Professor Stephen Macedo. Uh, he's a visiting professor at the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Center, or SHARK, SHARK as I like to think about it to help you remember. Um, and we're so excited to have him here with the U.S. Study Center today. Uh, just before we begin, um, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to el their elders past, present, and emerging. And for those of us joining us remotely tonight, I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. So the January 6th Select Committee hearings highlight points of crisis in American democracy. Yet the roots of these challenges undeniably precede the Capitol riots, given the US economic, social, and cultural trends. Tonight, we're joined by Stephen Macedo, Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Politics and the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. His authoritative work on immigration, liberalism, populism, and democratic theory is right at the nexus of the issues we see playing out, uh, not just in the Capitol riots and then January 6 hearings, uh, but now the unprecedented raid of a former president. And critically, the widely disparate responses to something that might disqualify him from holding higher office in future. Why are the most important, or what are the most important economic, social, and cultural trends fueling these tensions in US democracy? What can be done to strengthen and improve American democracy? And what are the implications for Australia? To discuss these issues, uh, we'll have opening remarks from Stephen, and then we're gonna have a moderated discussion uh, with the US Study Center's research director, Jared Monshine. Uh, following that, we'll take some audience questions and try to get to as many as possible. We have a tight 60 minutes tonight, um, but we do invite you to stay around afterwards. Um, you know, grab one of the refreshments and have a chat. We're just so thrilled to have people back with us tonight. Uh, so now without further ado, I'd like to welcome up Professor Stephen Macedo. Well, thank you very much. And it is uh, great to have an in-person event. We've, we've been having some at Princeton, but it still also feels fresh and uh, refreshing to be back and seeing people in person. And thank you all for, so for your hospitality here. Sydney's a great city and this is a wonderful university and I very much appreciate the opportunity to spend some time. Thanks to Alex and to the uh, Alex Lefebvre and uh, uh, also the hosts of the center here uh, for the opportunity. Um, so these are kind of uh, rough remarks uh, based on um, my reading in political science and, uh, and watching of the news media and so on as I'm sure the people do. Uh, and um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think are the, the main causes of the crisis and uh, uh, then say something at the end, which is hardly uh, by way of an adequate response, but I think may speak to things that we can do as academics and maybe as people that sort of comment on public affairs. How much difference what I'm proposing will make is uh, a separate question and perhaps not uh, far, be far from sufficient, but at least it's something. Uh, and in any case, um, uh, I think there's something to what I'm going to say at the end, though I'll leave it to others to contest. So in terms of causes, I just think it might be worth sorting the between two different categories. Uh, one would be, uh, could categorize as system failures. That is the failures of the American constitutional system, representative institutions, electoral institutions, and so on. So uh, the failures of our ingrained political constitutional representative systems, electoral systems. Um, and, and that's one important category. And I'll mention uh, some features of our, of our political system, unequal representation of states and over-representation of small states and so on. Um, but I don't think that's, those are the main causes. I don't think the main causes are system failures or constitutional failures, failures of electoral system and so on. So the second category will be a series of what I'll call, you know, somewhat imperfectly, obviously, but environmental or contextual stress factors, historical developments, 
that impinge on our politics now that I think represent the confluence of the deepest conflicts in American history coming together uh, roughly at the same time, uh, involving race, economic inequality, globalization, and so on. But I'll get to that in a minute. I think those more historically contextual stress factors are ultimately more significant. Um, uh, uh, so let me let me let me let me get to that in a minute. And then, as I say, I'll say something about what we can do as academics, as people that comment on public affairs, as citizens, to um, possibly ameliorate the problems slightly. But in any case, I think that's something we should be doing for its own sake. And I'll, I won't spoil the surprise. Uh, so what about, first of all, the, 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 the systemic failures with the American constitutional system, the electoral system, and so on? I mean, there's a, there's a substantial literature on our undemocratic constitution in the United States, a book on that by that title by Robert Dahl, you know, it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Sanford Levinson, a law professor, has also written a book with a, with a similar title. They both have titles similar to our undemocratic constitution. And, and th those features would include things like what I've just mentioned, the fact that every state, regardless of population size, gets two senators by constitutional guarantee and at least one representative. Wyoming is 180th the size of California in terms of population. So there is a overrepresentation of rural states, small states, and an underrepresentation of large population states. And that matters not just for the composition of the United States Senate, but for the composition of the Electoral College. It's that we don't have a popular vote for president. It's that that allowed Donald Trump to win the presidency with less than 50% of the vote uh, both times, 47%, uh, I think it was the last time. Uh, uh, and yet he won the electoral, not, not the last time, but the time before when he actually won, and he won, he won the electoral college. Um, um, uh, and so that's one factor. Another one we could, that's very popular and discussed is partisan gerrymandering, uh, the, the partisan drawing of state of district bounds for the House of Representatives and for state legislatures done by the states. The Constitution allocates that power to the states. It leaves it up to the states how to do it. There are, depending on how you count it, eight or nine states that have non-politicians doing the districting, including Michigan, and that does take the politics out of districting, uh, leaving it to uh, politician commissions or to members, the, the controlling party in the state uh, uh, houses of uh, the state legislatures uh, every, every 10 years uh, on a census cycle does allow for partisan advantage in certain states where a party that may win um, 51% of the votes is able to control 60 or 70% of the legislative seats. So that's, that, is, that, is also, that is also a problem. The role of money in politics, uh, you know, another problem uh, in the United States as elsewhere, um, uh, certainly criticized. The weakening of party elites uh, up until the 1970s, when it came to selecting presidential candidates and sometimes other candidates for office, party elites played a large role uh, and they had an incentive to choose presidential candidates who would well represent the party brand and would tend to appeal to swing voters. Since then, we've had more popular primaries uh, in which uh, you follow the, the system. We have, starting with Iowa and uh, New Hampshire and so on, uh, caucuses in Iowa, uh, uh, there are popular votes for, uh, to, to, uh, to uh, select presidential candidates. And also, popular primaries to select candidates for House representations. Liz Cheney just lost her, her, her primary and for others. And the problem with those is that while it seems more democratic to do it that way, to let the voters decide on the candidates, the, mem the voting members of the party, it's a small selection of the voters that show up. So you tend to get more ideological extremists, overrepresentation of Tea Party Republicans, and some of you get overrepresentation of progressive Democrats uh, that can make it harder to appeal to voters in the middle, and that may contribute to the polarization of the system. I'm not going to go through too many more, but let's just add one more on what's discussed a lot lately, the Supreme Court. Uh, it wields a lot of power in the United States. Uh, it always has, but uh, judges are being, justices are being nominated on, with a focus on uh, attitudes towards particular decisions to an extent that was not so much the case before. Eisenhower nominated a whole set of very liberal judges. Eisenhower, at the end of his presidency, was asked, did you make any mistakes when you were president? He said, I made two big mistakes, and they're both sitting on the Supreme Court. But uh, you know, even Ronald Reagan uh, uh, and, uh, and George Bush nominated uh, people that turned out to be not nearly as conservative as, and was, was less focused on that. The other problem, of course, is longevity. Uh, they're all nominating very young people now. Clarence Thomas has already been on the Supreme Court for 31 years, and he's only 74. 
So he could easily be on the court for 40, 45 years. And whatever one thinks of his politics, the idea that um, we'd be selecting justices for the court uh, sort of randomly as they, when they die or decide to resign and they can resign when a partisan president is in office uh, is just a, a, a crazy way of getting any kind of representative balance on this very, very important institution. There's six, six Republican nominees now and a supermajority as a consequence. I could go on. So look, I'm just gonna leave it there. The system is substantially flawed from a standpoint of democracy, from the standpoint of uh, delib deliberative good government. Um, but I don't think what I've just mentioned is the stuff of, of crisis. Um, some of these features have been there for a long time. Some of them have gotten worse perhaps. But um, and I'll also add that political scientists play down the effects of some of these. Take gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering of districts. Yes, partisan gerrymandering allowing you know, the party in power in a state to draw district lines to advantage themselves and disadvantage the other party is a bad idea. It's uh, sort of inherently offensive, I think, from the standpoint of democratic fairness and so on. But it turns out that it would be hard to draw districts that fairly represented Democrats in many cases, not because of partisanship, because, but because they're so geographically concentrated in cities. Uh, Republican voters are simply much more spread out. Uh, uh, and so um, you'd have to, to draw districts that were like pie wedges going into cities that wouldn't be representing anything like natural communities. So uh, uh, again, my colleagues tend to suggest that yes, gerrymandering is an important issue, but it's not, the, the overrepresentation of, of Republicans is not simply a consequence of that. Uh, and I'll just mention one other thing. I'm not gonna try to poo-poo all of these systematic concerns because I think they're genuine. The role of money in politics, again, some of my colleagues have sort of played it down a bit. Having a lot of money doesn't help much once you've gotten to a certain threshold, it seems. Larry Bartels argued that. Uh, having money certainly matters a lot more to challengers than to incumbents because incumbents tend to be well known. So to some extent, some of my colleagues have played down you know, the importance of money in politics. As long as you have enough money, you can get your message out. You know, that may be sufficient. And strangely enough, of course, Trump spent very little on his campaign. He got vast amounts of free airtime. Air and, and candidates can sometimes do that. It's not all about spending money. So I'm just gonna leave these categories aside and we can come back to them and people may have other, other points of view. But I'm just gonna suggest that I don't think that uh, the current crisis is primarily due to these typical sources that are referred to as kind of system failures, constitutional failures, failures of the electoral system, the democratic system. So, so, so what about the contextual and environmental stressors, the challenges in a way that the system is facing at the moment? And here I think, and of course, this is a bit of a bogus distinction to some extent because uh, the, the, the problems, these challenges are, are a result of the confluence of the system and, uh, and, and, and other stressors and so on. So they're not completely independent of one another. But in any case, I think there, there's, we, we might distinguish between what I've just talked about and contextual environmental stressors. So again, a list of, of similar length, extreme economic inequality, you know, levels of economic inequality not seen since the 1920s. Uh, just vast amounts of inequality. And a terrific book with an unterrific title, I think does a very good job of discussing this, Let Them Eat Tweets by Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson is a really incredibly well-written book and a nice a summary article. It's kind of a strange title, but uh, they really do a nice job of arguing. And I'm sure it's been criticized that the, the top one-tenth of 1% 1 uh, who hold vast amounts of, of wealth in the United States also wield significant political influence and have political preferences quite out of step with the mainstream American public. Um, uh, so they, they, they've argued strongly for, uh, and that's, I, I highly recommend that book among others, extreme economic inequality then. And secondly, and relatedly, uh, globalization, automation, you know, that have led to the decimation of the working classes uh, in Western Europe and the United States. Um, the consequences of globalization were not foreseen. I don't know if people have seen the Milanovic elephant curve, which is this astonishing thing about real economic growth across the entire population of the world. You start with the poorest people in the world at one end, and then the richest people in the world at the other end, and real economic growth for 30 years has looked like you know that, and then down, and then up at the very top, which is to say you've had a huge rise of sort of people rising out of desperate poverty in China and India. Um, you know. The rates of people living on less than a dollar a day in China in the 1970s was something like 90%, 95%. Now it's 8%. Uh, it's $1.90 a day now. India similarly has seen this vast you know, change in many parts of Africa and so on as well. 
you know, who could have foreseen the, the profound economic consequences of that <clears throat> for Western workers? And automation has also led to a decline of factory jobs uh, and other changes as well. So the fact is now that far fewer children in the United States can expect to do better than their parents. That was something like 90, 95% in the 1950s, and now it's down around 50% can expect to do better than their parents. So that's what's called the American dream. You know, every generation does a bit better and aspires to do better. And that's just been lost. Um, uh, so uh, hugely important to think about uh, the sources of populism. Fine. Another category of, of issues that's uh, uh, historically important, uh, I think no one can underestimate the importance of race in America. The racial division that's been there from the beginning that's never been grappled with, that Alexa de Tocqueville discussed in such pessimistic terms, predicting a race war uh, when he wrote uh, uh, his, his books, his volumes in the 1830s. Um, so our long delayed racial reckoning, I think, has been another uh, source of stress in American politics, along with the presidency of Barack Obama. Having, having a black president, I think, has also mattered. And uh, rhetoric around the theme of the United States becoming a majority minority nation. Um, I think uh, that that also has been uh, a spur towards resentment and anxiety, racialized status anxieties on the part of large segments of the population. Uh, Levitsky and Ziblatt write about this in another terrific book, How Democracies Die. Uh, they say one of the important factors that explains the fragility of democracy in America is the fact that it was never consolidated because of the failure of reconstruction after the Civil War. That is the failure to fully integrate blacks or even partially integrate blacks into the democratic system, except temporarily. Well, that's fair enough, but it also failed because of the failure to integrate communities in the North when uh, you know, busing uh, and the attempts to integrate schools and communities was also uh, refused by, uh, by, by both working class people and white liberals in suburbs who wouldn't, who wouldn't do it. Um, so democracy has never been consolidated in America and our racial reckoning uh, is, is, um, reflects that fact. Um, and then I'll add to that historically high rates of immigration. Um, we've, we've had uh, over the last 20 or 30 years in particular, uh, as a delayed consequence of the 1965 immigration reforms, high, high rates of immigration rivaling those of the early 20th century, late 19th century, when there was also a backlash against immigration. There were uh, extensive immigration restrictions and a populist backlash in the early 20th century, which elites resisted as they resisted it prior to Trump, uh, and, uh, uh, but which manifested themselves. And I, I think um, uh, that's something that elites should have been paying more attention to before. Um, the immigrants to the United States have been predominantly low-wage workers. Um, there's, there's disputes about the wage effects of that, but there's also been fiscal burdens on communities um, as a consequence of greater use of social services and so on. And, and then finally, just a couple more very quick things, but by way of stressors, and they can't be denied. R rapid changes in the sexual and gender cultures. Again, you know, think about the extent to which the uh, something like 80% of the people that were there on January 6th at the United States Capitol were men and uh, the gender divide with respect to Trump. Um, I think, uh, you know, to some extent that, and the changes just have been very rapid and, and, and I think unsettling uh, for, for many people. And then finally, and I think this is huge, obviously, and it can't be denied, and you, you guys experienced this here as well, which is to say the new communications and media environments. Um, in the United States, newspapers and the traditional curators of the circulation of information have been decimated. The business model of newspapers was destroyed, you know, early on by things like Craigslist, which took a lot of advertising. Uh, and then even more so by the rise of the social media giants. You look at the, the advertise something like Google and Facebook, it's something like 50% of all the advertising revenues in the world. It's, it's astonishing. Um, they've undermined uh, the traditional reporting. The, the number of local newspapers in the United States has, is a tiny fraction of what it once was. The number of reporters covering state and local politics uh, is, is a tiny fragment of what it once was. Uh, and uh, uh, the motto of the New York Times is democracy dies in darkness. And that is certainly the case. There's, uh, there's little or no media scrutiny of uh, local and state governments in the United States. And the vast majority of, of public sector workers in the United States are at the state and local level. State governments in the United States wield uh, you know, enormous power of public policy. Uh, and uh, New Jersey, we have not a single, new, we, have not, we have hardly have a single state newspaper or 
our television station, all of our media depends on Philadelphia and New York. First thing Chris Christie did when he became governor was to defund uh, the public radio station and to stop placing state ads in local newspapers because that was part of the advertising revenue. Um, so anyway, um, social media is, is good for democracy in some ways. It gives people direct access to the means of communication, unmediated communication. That, that's something democratic about that, but it also allows for the circulation of misinformation, conspiracy theories, and so on. Um, uh, and then one final point, um, and I hadn't thought about this, and I didn't put it in the, the outline that I gave you, but it was based, I was just looking on the plane on the way over on Dana Milbank's new book called The Destructionists, which is about the final factor, which is the, I, I, I say this as someone who used to be a Republican myself, um, but I think the only way to put it is, you know, the rise of a utterly immoral, undem you know, opportunistically undemocratic leadership in the Republican Party. Not all of them, not John McCain, not, not Liz Cheney and so on, but starting not just in, but, but an important uh, turning point came with Newt Gingrich uh, and uh, who, who replaced Bob Michael, who had been the leader of the Republicans now, who so was a World War II veteran and who believed in the system, who put system values ultimately ahead of, of uh, partisan advantage when push came to shove. And that has not been the case with, uh, with Gingrich and so many others including those who understood the truth of January 6th in the immediate aftermath, like Kevin um, McCarthy, uh, but who has subsequently um, kept his mouth shut largely. There's another book that's gotten a lot of press attention in the United States called Thank You for Your Servitude, which is another book about the kowtowing of Republican leaders to Trump uh, over the last uh, five years. So I, I think the, the, the framers of the American Constitution were emphatic that the system could not survive without sufficient moral rectitude, belief in the system, willingness to put the system above every aspect of partisan advantage, to put the system first, ultimately, when push came to shove. And every I've never read anything about American Congress that suggests otherwise. So that, that simple fact of, uh, of um, uh, utter opportunism uh, is... Um, it's extremely important, and I highly recommend Dana Milbank's book, which is um, not a pleasant read, but it's an important one. Okay, so so that's my that's my setup, and that's most of what I wanted to say. Um, that I think the problems, at least in terms of diagnosis, are these these powerful stress factors, some of which are going to be very hard to deal with in the United States. So far as social media companies go, and the rise of right wing media, the United States First Amendment is almost entirely negative. It's almost entirely preoccupied with restraining government's ability to regulate speech and insistence that any government regulations of speech have to be viewpoint and content neutral. And it doesn't make any difference what the viewpoint is. The leading Supreme Court case, the RAV versus uh, St. Paul, I think it is, is, is insisting on viewpoint and content neutrality when it comes to racist speech. So <laughs> uh, 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 it, it, we're not well set up at all. To, to grapple with um, uh, the media environment. Uh, the Europeans are doing more, but still they've mainly focused on things like child porn and so on, and not uh, right-wing disinformation, which is, going to be, which is going to be extremely difficult for a democratic, a liberal democratic system to deal with. But in any case, so that's my main argument, the stress factors. Now then, so finally then, what, what are we to do? And I will, I will also say that I've you know, asked my colleagues this. I'm not a political scientist. I'm a political theorist, but I work in the political science department, and I am a consumer of uh, political science, and I've collaborated with colleagues. I, I twice taught democratic ideals and realities with Larry Bartels and Chris Aiken, and um, I've helped and I have to be, you know, for, since, since five or six years ago when we had a conference on this, you know, the question came up, so what should we do? What is to be done? <laughs> And people are drawing a blank. I mean, you could wave a magic wand and uh, you know, imagine reforms that would be useful. But the question is, what, what effective reforms is there a prospect of uh, actually enacting in a system that's broken? You know, how do you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps when your bootstraps are broken? Uh, that is the trick. That is that is the trick. I thought COVID might be a, a kind of wake-up call to some extent, but of course that was wrong. So I, I'm only going to, I only have one suggestion, which is tinkering around the edges, but it is something that I personally have observed and I, I personally feel strongly about. And maybe it's because I used to be a conservative and I'm still a moderate. I guess I consider myself a kind of Obama, Biden, Buttigieg Democrat. Um, 
not not an AOC Democrat. Um, and I worry about the left wing of the Democratic Party turning off people in the middle. So maybe that's where this is coming from. But in any case, my main argument is that I think one thing we can do if we are academics and a little more on the progressive side is to do more to be a little bit more attentive to conservative concerns when they are reasonable and ought to be taken seriously. This polarization is asymmetrical. There's no question about that. Uh, the, the Republican right has gone much further off the rails. Certainly, it's only the Republican right that threatens democracy in America, not the Democratic left. The Democratic left, I think, only threaten it in the sense of, of threatening us to, to lose elections, but uh, they're not, I don't think the Democratic left is just trying to stop people from voting uh, uh, and redistribution of income uh, would be good for democracy, not bad for democracy. But in any case, um, I think, I, think, I think there has been uh, excessive and unnecessary polarization and a progressive direction as well in major media outlets like the New York Times and on national public radio and elsewhere. And I'm just gonna use two examples, um, abortion and COVID policy. So, you know, the abortion decision has been much in the news lately. Uh, virtually, virtually all of the discussion leading up to the Supreme Court case concerned the politics of the issue, not the merits of the issue. Um, when I was in graduate school in the late 80s and 90s, liberals routinely, people in the progressive side routinely acknowledged that it's not an easy question. Uh, Amy Gutman and Dennis Thompson were uh, te you know, teachers of mine and I taught for them and they did a casebook together and they, you know, they argued that abortion is a hard question, that a certain kind of compromise on abortion, acknowledging that there are reasons on the other side, the value of life, which becomes more important over time. And the fact that people have strong convictions on that side ought to be taken into account in policy. And I believe that they defend it as a, as a kind of part of a compromise. There's no public funding for abortions. Um, and again, they were considered to be, are considered to be progressive, deliberative Democrats. You don't get that now. I heard not a single discussion of, of what makes abortion a hard question for people, as opposed to the politics of, of the question. Uh, nothing about the difficulty of the issue and how the difficulty of the issue helps to explain why American public opinion has been very steady on this issue. And most Americans believe that yes, abortion should be uh, uh, accessible, but only up to a point uh, and, and under certain circumstances. Um, so according to recent Gallup polls, um, a majority of Americans think abortion should generally be illegal after the 12th week. Well, the Mississippi law, that, that no one acknowledged as you know, possibly acceptable, only prohibited abortion generally after 15 weeks, which is, which is after 93% of abortions take place in the United States. Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in that case, which uh, upheld the constitutionality of the Mississippi law, but did not go, did not go along with the rest of the more conservatives on, uh, on, on holding that there was no federal uh, uh, right to abortion at all. He only would have upheld the Mississippi law and done nothing else, argued that 15 weeks is enough time for a woman to make a choice. So if, if women's choice is the value, if giving women the freedom to decide is the value, it's not, it may not be unreasonable to think that 15 weeks is an adequate amount of time. He suggested that there's nothing especially, uh, not clear why viability uh, is the only principled point. And I thought in general, in, in the progressive commentary on this, and I think it was political. I think it was political. They they insisted that viability was the only uh, reasonable point, and that anything else would be seen as an over a simple overturning of Roe versus Wade. Well, the, the uh, fifteen week uh, period of of availability uh, would have would have upheld much of what Roe versus Wade held. Uh, and I'm not saying that I think this is the right policy, but I think at least should have been acknowledged that. Um, that it it might have been an acceptable policy and an acceptable compromise, and you'd have a supermajority in the United States in favor of uh, of abortion restrictions somewhat more circumscribed than than the viability holding. You would have a supermajority for Roberts's um, position, I think. Um, in any case, there was no discussion of the merits uh, uh, of of the questions in the American media, and I'll just finally say that the person who I think is boy. I, a superb commentator in American politics, you may hear of over here, Ezra Klein's podcasts, which I think are just superb. He had an Oxford philosopher on, Kate Greasley, and she's written a book on abortion, acknowledging the difficulties issue. 
And she made a telling observation about why so few academics take seriously the pro-life side of the argument. And she said, just think about what it would be like to be in a place like Oxford, and I would say Princeton, and maybe the University of Sydney, and not support abortion rights. It would be completely untenable. Why, she said, because abortion rights are so closely tied up with sexual autonomy and equality for women. And that strikes me as an apt observation. And I think that women's equality and autonomy are central to, the, to what's at stake in abortion, for sure. But they're not an adequate justification or rationale for not taking the other side of the issue seriously. Uh, so that's what I'm suggesting about abortion, that, that, the, that the debate has been one-sided, skewered, and truncated, and it's made the issue unnecessarily uh, polarized. So just COVID policy, I'll just be brief here because I've gone way over time. But I just think there's, there's little question in the United States that there was inadequate attention to the costs of school closures in many democratic states. Um, school, school closures, extended school closures, I don't know how long you had your school closed here, but they had closed for the whole year and then more than a year in many places. They've never had school closures like that before uh, for, for anything. Extended school closures were far more likely to be enacted in democratic leading states like California, New York, and New Jersey. And there was very little evidence to suggest that that was an effective way of protecting children. There was also no evidence that it would, it would hurt teachers. But teachers' unions insisted on, on it, and they insisted on a standard for reopening that was far more strict than any scientific bodies had. Um, so the overall result was in these uh, democratic-leaning states, unprecedented school, extended school, school closures were enacted that had the effect of furthering the interests of older educated elites at the expense of children and young people in general, and especially working class children and also working class families with school-aged children, as well as many businesses that faced hardship and bankruptcy. Philosopher at Stanford um, by the name of Das Gupta, and I, I didn't write down his first name, has a piece on something like school policy during COVID, and he surveys the you know, empirical evidence and so on, but calls it a moral catastrophe. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, again, what, what the democratic progressive mantra was during COVID was follow the science, follow the science. We must base our decisions on science. Yes, we should base decisions on science, but these decisions are always involve value judgments and trade-offs. And those were not acknowledged. The safe value of the science is bogus. You can never make a decision on these things just on the basis of science because it depends on risk assessments and risk comparisons and costs and benefits. And the, the, the mantra of following the science has just, I think, been a way to some degree of shutting down discussion and not paying attention to the trade-offs. And I think the costs for children in the United States, especially children from less advantaged backgrounds, has been phenomenal. They will never make up the uh, inequality in school achievement that have been imposed by the policies. Uh, they will never make up the gap. Uh, uh, evidence is suggested from extended school strikes. Uh, many of them will never make up the gap from uh, the, the year or year and a half of school that they lost. So anyway, that's my suggestion, which is a modest proposal that the very least I think that progressives can do, uh, uh, not, to, not just to compromise for the sake of compromise or mollifying you know, opponents and so on, but based on the merits, let's remember uh, you know, John Stuart Mill's exhortation you know, that we should take seriously, you know, that our own position is only as strong as its capacity to stand up to you know, the criticisms of the other side construed in the most positive and sympathetic light. And the fact is that our public discourse is uh, incapable of doing that at the moment, but it's partly incapable of doing it because of, I think, excessive progressive intolerance of conservative opinion. Uh, and I, uh, I think, uh, I think th that's at least something, I think, somewhat within our control. And so that's, that's what I wanted to say. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that. Um, my name is Jared Monchan. I work at the uh, US Studies Center. Our banner's here. And um, we are a think tank uh, focused on the US. And our motto, as you can see behind me, is analysis of America, insight for Australia. But one thing we really want to focus on more in the coming years is uh, solutions for the alliance. And so you spoke about uh, impacts and you know what do we do about this? But I'm basically going to try to push you a bit more on the one thing that you haven't focused on as much uh, given, uh, given your, your prior focus. But I guess one thing, one thing to flag that I'd, I'd love to learn a bit more about if you could, I find it fascinating to hear your personal 
political move. I mean, I'm not a historian. We don't really have a resident historian at the U.S. Studies Center, but I think you might be the first uh, Ron Paul legislative <laughs> assistant. On my CV, yes. Yeah. I, I applied when I was in grad school to work in the Reagan speechwriting office, and I didn't get a job there, but then I worked for Ron Paul for nine months. And um, I was a classical liberal. Uh, he was a libertarian. I didn't agree with a lot of his policies, but I thought it would be a fun place to work. It, NASA was in the district, but he voted against NASA uh, appropriations. The district was a flood plain. He voted against federal flood relief because he thought that people should have their own private insurance and so on. So he was quite a quite a uh, quite a character. But he voted his principles, even if the principles were slightly nuts. Uh, that's what he did. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, you know, he also voted against the Iraq War and uh, you know uh, believed in pulling American troops back from NATO and so on. He was a non-interventionist, and uh, it was it was interesting. Uh, and we'd have debates in the office about libertarian principles and so on. And it was at least a fun place to work. But sorry. No, that's that's what I wanted to hear is, is yeah, how have you shifted from that sort of libertarian? Like your your work with Cato was cited in the Supreme Court. Like how how have you shifted personally in, in your, your view and or maybe some key um key points in that shift that that really led you to arrive where you are today? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I did something early on for the Cato Institute responding to Robert Bork's jurisprudence originalism, or that the Constitution would be interpreted in light of its original meaning. And I was, I thought that was wrong from the start, uh, in part because uh, the Constitution uh, was written in broad terms in, in many parts, quite intentionally. Uh, and if people had wanted us to be, if they had framed and wanted us to be guided by the original meaning, they could have been much clearer about what it was. They did say that the president has to be 35 years old, not mature. So it has to be 35 years old. But in other cases, they said there should be no unreasonable searches and seizures. Well, then we need to make our mind of what's an unreasonable search or seizure. Learning from history, but not, not being limited by it. So as a general matter, I think that's just a, frankly, I think it's been used as a tool by, by the right to, to oppose liberal you know, decisions. But in any case, I, I've pretty much stuck to my guns on that one. Uh, and um, uh, I, I got them to, to publish that stuff and embrace that position because I did also think that some economic liberties uh, were, were should be protected. And I still do think that. But um, I've moved a bit to the left, but it's also the case that the public party has moved to the right. But I was influenced by Rawls uh, and uh, more reading of uh, egalitarian political theory. And I think became, became more aware, I think, as I was in grad school, but then also faculty positions about the extent to which institutional arrangements and the ways in which our communities are shaped by laws and policies and exclusionary zoning and things like that shape people's life prospects much more deeply than I think I was aware of. So I still believe in extensive individual liberty, but it has to be against the background of fair institutions. Um, and our institutions are deeply unfair. I don't see how anyone can look at opportunity hoarding in suburbs, which are liberal suburbs as much as conservative suburbs, the extent to which um, schools depend upon peers uh, for their quality, and the extent to which uh, having a group of Rich kids whose parents take education very seriously in school means you, your chances of success are extremely great. But likewise, if you're going to a school in a poor area with much higher level of single parenting and poverty and uh, first generation English as a second language and so on and so forth, the challenges are overwhelming. And trying to correct you know, for that through fiscal means money is almost virtually impossible. So, so the, the fact that our communities are segregated and stratified by race and class in the United States and that's largely a consequence of public policy, not entirely, but, but that, that, that kind of thing, I think I became much more aware of. So I, I still, I mean, I still believe in, uh, I'd say classic liberal principles, um, but I, I think realizing them in a way requires much more intervention to make the background uh, fair. One, one thing that uh, you get a lot of in, uh, when you're at the US Study Center is you, in, in recent years is use of the word unprecedented. And um, just this uh, use of that word is unprecedented. Exactly, <laughs> you nailed it. Um, but I guess one one question I have for you is: is, is you really articulated the drivers and and the systemic issues going on here. But when I talk about polar, or when I think about polarization in in America, we we can't really say it's unprecedented because we had a civil war, that's right? That's very true. Is this crisis that you've so? eloquently uh, articulated to us, unprecedented. 
No, I, you're right. I mean, we haven't had a civil war again yet. <laughs> so it's uh, no, you're, you're quite right. And the 19th century in general was, uh, you know, was raucous. Uh, there were various crises uh, and compromises that were made. Uh, and the race issue was was moved off the table with Jim Crow. So, um, no, I mean, look, we had a civil war. That was the worst crisis in American history, uh, without question. Uh, um, but most analysis tend to think that this is this is this is this is the worst we've had going back to that. It's hard to think of um, again. The leadership issue has been problematic. We've had lots of opportunistic leaders and so on. Now, I don't want to exaggerate. I do have colleagues. Uh, I will say that that think that the sense of crisis is exaggerated. Um, there is something unique about Donald Trump. Um, he was uh, he has a career in entertainment that was incredibly successful. Uh, he is in his own way, I think, an amazing entertainer, an amazing communicator. Um, and I don't think he, there's a follow. I don't think he has a successor. Uh, of the same sort, uh, maybe Tucker Carlson or something. I don't know, but I, I don't. I don't. You know, I think uh, the others are all. Um, and I, I. But I think Trump is unique. Uh, so that, that it may be that the sense of crisis is exaggerated. We'll see. But it's it certainly is severe and significant. And you know the card. You know, what's we'll see what happens with elections, with who holds positions as secretaries of state, whether election integrity is maintained as. Republican officials did across the country. I mean, that's the other pushback, I think, on the sense of crisis, that there were many, many, many Republican officials, including some who go along with Trump silently, who, uh, who did push back, even the January 6th hearings in the United States. It turns out that Trump was surrounded by people in the Oval Office who would not do his bidding. Um, I think uh, he had a meeting with Giuliani and uh, Sidney Powell, who was his lawyer, and he wanted to appoint Sidney Powell Justice Department. And the other people in the room that said, no, we're not going to do it. He's, he said, they said something like, you can, you can make an announcement to that effect, and it's not going to happen. And then Trump turned to, to Giuliani and Sidney Powell and says, see, I get this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the so-called deep state, but the fact there are, there are many, many people there and many, many people in the Republican Party who are committed to democracy. Uh, not to mention, you know, Brad Raffensperger and so on, and, and public officials in Michigan and so on. We'll just have to you know, hold them uh, and, and hope that they, uh, they persevere. Hope. Yeah. Um, so you, you said you, you, you don't really prescribe very much. It's more, you, you, you feel more comfortable maybe um, sort of diagnosing and, and articulating, but I, I want to, to read an excerpt from something you, you published in 2019 in the annual review of law and, science, and social sciences with Jane Mansbridge, an article called uh, Populism and Democratic Theory. Um, and here's the quote. The vast majority of recent scholarship on populism today rightly stresses its dangers. We have argued that the moralized antagonism built into the core of populism can be dangerous to democracy. And I continue ellipse, ellipses here. We also conclude that populism is sometimes healthy for democracy in opposition, but rarely healthy in power. Non for, for those who are not populists and are repelled by the racism, xenophobia, and other characteristics that populism can take on, what stance toward populism is best for democracy? Fortunately for us, he does not end the article there. Uh, so <laughs> I'll keep reading. Non-populists can look closely into the populist demands to see which interests they can address constructively consonant with their own deepest values. For progressive cosmopolitans, this means addressing populist complaints about wages, immigration, and cultural issues creative, creatively, while rejecting racism, xenophobia, and attacks on constitutional democracy. We argue that in the best of circumstances, the current populist moment could produce a democratic awakening. We do not argue that we are living in those best circumstances. So two, two questions. that <laughs> <laughs> part. Two questions I have on that is, one, do you, after the completion of the, of, of, uh, the Trump uh, first yeah. term, maybe, of the Trump presidency, but also after January 6th, yeah. do you have a different take on that? But two, and, and this is where, where I get to sort of what the USA Center does, is we, we saw the Washington Post recently published a piece about how uh, President Biden has really taken to getting groups of historians into the uh, Oval Office, into the White House to really advise him. And you know it's a good PR move. They go to the media and say he, he knows what's going on. But I, I think so with the American Historical Association, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think what what they make clear though is that he's very aware of the moment that he is in. Sometimes you have people who are not self aware of what's right. going on. Um, but I think he is aware. So if you are one of those one of those academic advisors 
to um, uh, President Biden, what would you say for this moment? Well, I think he actually understands the, the things that you've just mentioned. Um, he, uh, would, uh, we were all thinking about, you know, uh, leading up to 2020 and during the primaries and so on, you know, I think the uppermost question in the minds of Democrats thinking about the candidates was which one has the best chance of beating Trump. And then, and, and I think he was, again, colleagues and so on were overwhelming in there. It was Biden. And it was because Biden uh, was best able to speak to those working class voters uh, who uh, had won over, who moved to Trump. I mean, the analyses of, the, of Trump's victory often focused on the 8% of Obama voters who voted for Trump. Uh, uh, and it was those folks that, which Biden did win some of them back. Um, and uh, other things went up too, turnouts and so on. But I, I think that's right. I think, um, I, think, I think there's a need to appeal to the middle for various reasons, both for the sake of elections, but also because major legislation is gonna require, in, in the absence of an overwhelming democratic victory, is gonna require that sort of thing as we've seen with Biden and uh, you know, his willingness eventually, with a lot of resistance from his own party to finally sit down with Joe Manchin and figure out what he was willing to go along with which should have been the conversation right from the start. But in any case, um, I think people forget, you know, uh, there was a lot of, there's been a lot of complaint that why couldn't Biden achieve more and so on. With a Senate that's tied and with two senators who have won, you know, cinema and, uh, uh, and mansion in uh, strongly Republican leading state in West Virginia and, and a moderately Republican leading state in, in Arizona. Uh, um, you know, people forget that when Roosevelt enacted those historic policies in the New Deal, he had something like 70 or 80 percent of both the Senate and the House votes. He had super majorities and both the Republicans were decimated. He could just write legislation to the White House and send it over to be passed. Nothing like the current situation. Nothing like the current situation. The parties are closely divided. So um, so I think I see Biden's quite aware of this, that um, and he's. The Democrats have, in general, I think, been pretty good on this. And political science has been, social science has been pretty good on it. Books like Arlie Hawks Child's Left, that's not left behind, I'm forgetting the name of it now. Um, Strangers. Strangers in Our Own Land, yes. But Robert Wilson wrote a book called Left Behind and so on and so forth. All these ethnographies of working class people in the Midwest and so on. Uh, I do think, you know, that, right, but, you know, so I, I think we need to be more attentive to the extent to which large parts of the country have been socially and economically decimated. You know, and again, I think Biden's good on this, the extent to which the loss of well-paying factory jobs, which can't be replaced in any easy way, is not just the loss of economic support, but the loss of meaning in life. Again, the, the, the Deaton, uh, Case and Deaton book, Deaths of Despair. Um, <laughs> there's been lots of attention, you know, luckily to it. So I think that's, I think personally, I think that's where the appeal has to be. Um, you know, I've been reading a book about the uh, about the busing crisis in Boston called Common Ground, which is a terrific book. Uh, and it related to what I said before, it was federally imposed racial integration, which was, a, of course, a, acquired by justice, but it was it was federally imposed in working class parts of Boston with considerable resistance, with ambivalence from African Americans, but 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 it was it was certainly should have been done in some way. But uh, not only vicious, as I said, resistance from the white working class people, but then, but non-participation from the suburbs. So part of the resentment was with with, with elites uh, who um, were ignoring the costs of, of these things. Um, but in any case, I think that uh, yeah, more more attention to while pursuing the racial justice agenda for sure. Uh, I think I think that uh, that also is historic, and um, I think Biden's managed to be focused on both, which is good. So I actually think he's done. A, I think he's been a very good president. the The Afghan withdrawal is the thing that people have been most negative on, and it was horrible. But I think he was right. I think we had to get out, and I think there were lots of. It could have again, as Ezra Klein pointed out, one an excellent podcast could have gone worse. Um, there were actually very few deaths, at, at, you know, with, with um, what could have been a bloody, much more bloody civil war. I mean, it, it's a horrible situation, but. Um, Unfortunately, the Taliban were welcomed by, by large parts of the population, and, and it's 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 not our country. Yeah. So, the last question, then we'll open it up to to the audience. Um, 
you detail how you support what Biden has done and you say he's aware of what's going on. And, you know, you look at his legislative victories over the last couple of years are pretty significant, especially in the last uh, few weeks even. Um, so you have infrastructure, you have the COVID bailout, you have unprecedented industry policy semiconductors, um, you have a climate change bill about to uh, that, that just recently got completed. And I think one thing that the Biden administration was really um, upfront about was the fact that they didn't just want to talk to the talk, they really wanted to walk the walk. And so you have now these legislative victories. Do you think they make a difference? I think they'll make a difference, sure. You know, we'll see how much. I also think, frankly, the Supreme Court's abortion decision will make a difference being mobilizer for the Democrats. Um, I think that was a gift politically for the Democrats. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think all of these things make a difference. I think the January 6th hearings made a bit of a difference um, with the ongoing revelations and um, so on. So yes, I mean, I think uh, there may be reasons to be hopeful. Um, so yes, I mean, they, I think Biden's doing the right things for the right reason and let's hope, right reasons, and let's hope that they, they make a political difference. Sorry, I, I lied. Last follow up on that. <laughs> Do you think that his approval rating or any president's approval rating will ever be above 60% again? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, it's, it's a systemic challenge, yeah, though, right? Is I, that, I would certainly it, hope so. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people answering these these polls are emoting. Mm. And, you know, uh, uh, also, uh, let me say one other thing, which I didn't mention. I mentioned the media environment and so on. There is a phenomenal negativity bias in the press. Of course, if it bleeds, it leads. Across the board. Yeah. Uh, and that's very unfortunate. It's so cynicism in, in government. There's, there's, there's a totally inadequate accounting for the difficulty of doing politics. Uh, there are ridiculous expectations that are, are harbored by journalists very often. And I, you know, I, I listen to the BBC, but you know, the, in the American, but they somehow they, they think that the, the quintessence of journalism is, you know, uh, is, is, uh, Trying to make the politician look stupid, or, or you know, it, gotcha. I, I don't, it just, it's not. It doesn't convey a, a fair sense of. Uh, I would say that's more or less across the board. I mean, I think there are again very many Republican office holders who are trying to do the right thing according to their own lights, and um, I think we should. I think we need more appreciation for those that go into public service. So now I'll open up to questions um, with my my colleague here, Mary Cook, has. Uh, yeah, so um, we've got uh, just a few minutes for questions. We'll try to get to as many as possible. I'll run it to you quickly. Um, but if you just try and keep it really quick, we'll try and get to as many as possible uh, and move to drinks around seven o'clock. I'll come to you first. Thank you for your um, presentation. I'm a religious studies scholar. And in the social sciences, the study and impact religion is generally lost. How can we not see the role of the 81% of evangelicals that voted for Trump in the 2016 election and in the 2020 election and the utopia that they think that they've lost with the MAGA happening again? That's the first one. The second thing is how can, and I, I really would urge research in this area, and if anyone's got any money, I'd love to do it. Um, <laughs> the second point is how can the great replacement theory not be a religion, seeing that um, I believe a, a majority of people involved in the January 6th insurrection believe in the grand replacement theory? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, as I said, the idea of a majority-minority country is unnerving to people, um, and I, that's just that's a fact. Um, uh, uh, I'll just I'll just say that. Um, um, and then, yeah, in terms of, uh, of evangelicals and and Trump, yes, I mean, you no, know, there are convictions there. Trump promised to give them the Supreme Court justices they wanted, and he did that. He followed through. Um, uh, um, like I said, I think there are I, mean, I think there are serious issues about abortion, uh, but um, it is a little crazy. I mean, if you look at the shift of, of evangelicals' opinions on various questions, like the question of, of they, they, there were some public opinion polls that I had, something, but I don't have them in front of me. But it, you know, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it would you vote for someone who's done very immoral things for office? I can't remember how it's worded, but it was no seventy percent in you know twenty fifteen and then. You know, I, I care what it was, but just huge shifts uh, 
So um, you would think it's the case, actually, a book that's a bit dated now, but it's a very good book called American Grace by um, Robert Putnam and David Campbell, you know, shows and other things have shown this too, that Americans tend to, Americans are a very religious country, but really we're a very partisan political country because people tend to adjust their religious beliefs to their politics, not the other way around. Uh, so that's really quite amazing, actually, when you think about it. All right, thank you. Um, I think I saw a hand up at the back. We might have time for just one or two more, but um, yeah, I'll come to you, sir. Maybe should we should we group the questions if that's all right? Just in, in conscious of time. So if you want to ask your question, and then I think I saw a hand over here as well. Sure. Uh, very quickly, um, some of the audience may be aware, and for the religious studies scholar, uh, David Smith is right on top of many of these issues and explains it in great accuracy. And uh, uh, I mean, for, for example, the 1968 Southern Baptist Convention. The Baptists were in favor of abortion because right, exactly. the, the soul exists when it takes breath. Right, right, quickly. It's not a, a Catholic thing. Anyway, yeah, um, how do we end up selecting such loopy candidates <laughs> as Lauren Bobart, one of my favorites, MGT, um, the Georgia Senate race, Mehmet Oz, who's, I mean, he should be a 50 50. Not a shoe in, but it should be tight. Surely Mitch McConnell must be spitting chips. Great. And then I have the other question. And it's also an interesting point just the change between Cheers. the polarization and the common ground. Yeah, you, you yeah great talk, Steve. Um, you know, lots of other countries have inequality. We have racial injustices here, but we don't have a system where partisans can decide, say, the Florida election of 2000, Kathleen Harris or the, the role that electors can play, the role that these secretaries of state, a lot hangs on them. And you're a, more, a bit more optimistic about them than I am. On partisanship, you know, Trump could have been dismissed as president at the end of his term. There were plenty of people who the day after January 6th yeah. might have taken that opportunity. So they didn't take that opportunity to um, stop him from coming back. So those structural things seem sort of crucial and they're different maybe from other nations, the lack of a sort of nonpartisan electoral system. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, look, the Florida election thing, I think that's what you're referring to. Um, Bush did win that election, it turns out, according to the best analyses. I mean, it was very close. It was like 800 votes that separated them or something, or less than I can't remember. Uh, and and then the voting systems were crummy. You know, there were these things where you have to punch a hole in a piece of paper and it wasn't clear whether the hole, I mean, it was just, it's, it's, they're crummy, crummy machines. Um, so yeah, things like that do matter. And if you have an election that's, you know, razor thin like that, lots of things will play in. But I think these are, I think, I think it's, I didn't mention that, but I think you are right that the fragility of the guardrails at the state levels with respect to, uh, secretaries of state and local officials and so on. Yeah, we've become we're much more aware of that than we were before. The Republicans have been focused on this for a long time. It's one of those things where the Democrats, they've been, They've been getting people mobilized on behalf of secretaries of state's elections and, and having seminars on these things. And part of it is mobilization and attention. Even Theda Scotchpole and Vanessa Williams in that Tea Party book, they kind of admire the uh, energy, the canniness, and the mobilized democratic participatory ethos behind the Tea Party. And the left is not as good on that. Young people, progressives, don't vote in the United States. Um, they don't vote in significant numbers, and that's appalling. So some of it is fault of that. <laughs> but yes, you're right. There are these fragilities. I don't mean to say the system is not, not, not flawed and fragile. That's what those are And um, so I think if you, did you get a chance to answer that question? Oh, I think just in terms of the, the candidates. <laughs> no, I, I commend your comment. I commend what you just said yesterday. Yeah. So, um, Thank you so much. I think time. Yeah, we have one minute left. So one rapid fire question will come to you, sir. Um yes or no question. Uh, okay. not, I would just cross cross um coalition building and two two examples. One Elizabeth Anderson a few years ago was talking about like conservatives um who support climate action and whether you see prospects for that kind of unlikely coalition between progressives and conservatives on different issues, particularly climate. And the other one, cross-racial coalition uh, among working class people, whether you think there's any prospect for that. 
I mean, that would be nice for there to be uh, cross, right. I mean, there have been sort of even some evangelical religious types that talk about climate issues and that would be great. And sure, that's right. I mean, the Democratic Party to, to win has to be the party of, of uh, racial justice and working class uh, um, fairness. Yes, I mean, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the difficulty. Uh, and, um, but um, you can't, can't, write off the, can't write off the white working class. 45% uh, of the electorate? I can't remember what the, what the statistics was, but, uh, but most Americans don't have college degrees. What's that? What about the working class coming together themselves around? Yeah, it'd be great for them to come around climate issues and so on. I'm not sure, you know, it's unfortunately, we're seeing in Australia too, these climate crises don't seem to be adequate. Utah, the Great Salt Lake is drying up, and there, the, the dust that will blow into Salt Lake City from that apparently will be poisonous. Uh, it's perfect. What's that? Just you just changed your government. Well, well, cheers, cheers for you. <laughs> let's hope that uh, that let's hope that, that that's good. That, that I did hear that from, from folks, so that's that's important. I, I you know I, these Western states, the United States, are in desperate condition, water uh, and and so on. So that would be every reason why that should happen. So it does. So thank you. Um, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry that we're out of time for the audience questions right now. The good news for those of you who are joining us in person is that Stephen has agreed to stick around for a little bit um, to answer questions just mingling with people in the room. Uh, so please do stick around, ask those questions if you had them. Uh, we've got some light refreshments. We'll just non-alcoholic drinks over there. You're welcome to join us for. Uh, but just, yeah, real quickly, thank you again for joining us today for this live event and online event. Um, and please join me in thanking uh, both the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Center uh, for the opportunity to host Professor Macedo. And also thank you to Stephen for joining us tonight. It's been a very riveting discussion. Thank you.